Hello, everyone. This is your host, John Amarillo. As you undoubtedly know, last week's decision from the U.S. Supreme Court in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health overruled half a century of precedent and, with it, what had been women's federally protected constitutional right to obtain abortions in the United States. No matter one's view of abortion, Dobbs is probably the most controversial decision from the court in my lifetime and in the lifetimes of many of our listeners. And in recognition of that, we're doing two things here to address the decision. First, this week, we are rerunning an episode we previously released in September 2019, a conversation with lawyer, law professor, bioethicist, and author Katie Watson about her book, Scarlet A, The Ethics, Law, and Politics of Ordinary Abortion. It's a fascinating and enlightening conversation, every bit as relevant today as it was three years ago, or even just last week, and it lays foundation for the discussion we'll have in July's episode. That episode will be with Michelle Wetzel, General Counsel of Planned Parenthood, Illinois. As always, the conversation will be unscripted, so I can't tell you exactly what we'll cover, but you can bet it will involve a frank discussion of the Dobbs decision, what it means for women in Illinois, what it means for women across the country, and what it means for everyone when constitutionally protected rights can be taken away. We hope you'll tune in and join us, and in the meantime, that you'll find this rerun with Katie Watson as relevant and informative as we think it remains. Talk to you soon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where young and youngish lawyers have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news, events, topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Tastatinius and Hollister, and co-hosting the pod with me today is Chastity Burns of the Cook County Public Defender's Office. Hi, Chastity. Hi. So, Chastity, we are joined today by Catherine Watson, Associate Professor of Medical Social Sciences, Medical Education, and Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University. I'm really proud of myself for getting all that out in one sentence. <laughs> Uh, Professor Watson is also a lawyer who held a federal clerkship and practiced public interest law before joining Northwestern's faculty and completing fellowships in clinical medical ethics and medical humanities. She currently teaches law, ethics, and humanities to medical students at Northwestern. Katie, welcome to At The Bar. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, Katie, we're here to talk about abortion generally and your new book specifically, entitled Scarlet A, good Hawthorne reference, The <laughs> Ethics, Law, and Politics of Ordinary Abortion. The book has been appropriately well-reviewed as, quote-unquote, revolutionary by the New York Times. Its release seems very well-timed. Abortion is always, or at least almost always, a topic at the forefront of our country's culture wars. And the current seating of new Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh uh, brought it even more to the fore. Opponents of abortion hope he'll be the deciding vote on that court to either overturn or undermine the court's abortion jurisprudence. And by the same token, those in the pro-choice movement fear that Justice Kavanaugh will do exactly that. Quick disclaimer for our audience, for purposes of this episode, I at least will be using the terms pro-choice and pro-life to describe the opposing sides of this debate. I know from reading Katie's book that, though, that that nomenclature is really loaded with meaning, but I think it's familiar to our audience and just useful shorthand. Otherwise, I'll be stumbling over my words the whole <laughs> Fair time. Fair enough. Katie, having said all that, after reading your book, there are so much to take away from it, but really the thing the broad point that I took away from it was that abortion is just a prism for so many other social issues. Women's issues, of course, that's, I think, how I always thought of it. But civil rights generally, racial tensions, religion, socioeconomic stratification, pretty much everything. Can you take us there? I, I had no idea. Well, that's what I find so interesting about the topic. I think it's easy to think of like, 
oh, you write and think about abortion these days. That's a niche topic. That's a small topic, you know, big in the news, but it's a singular topic. And when you spend time with it, what you realize is exactly what you just noted. It's incredible depth um, and how it does become a prism. It becomes almost a Rorschach test <laughs> mm, yeah. for so many views. And if you're someone who's interested in culture, in politics, in power, in relationships, in social change and meaning over time, it is incredibly a rich area of study that I am never bored. Um, and I never feel like it's a narrow area. And it's also one of incredible impact on individuals' lives. The decision or the experience of whether to become a parent or not, uh, whether to continue a pregnancy or not, our sexual relationships, uh, our family arrangements, it has incredible direct impact. And then it has incredible cultural import and political import. So as both an academic, as a lawyer, and as just a citizen of the United States, I can't think of a richer topic practically to study. Yeah, it seems to have a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. What originally brought you to this topic? That's so interesting. I have always been drawn to the relationship between bodies and the state. What, what can the government tell you you must do or you may not do with your body. And so when I was in law school at NYU, I had a fellowship in civil liberties. And there were, I think, five at the time. It was called a Hayes Fellowship. But they were in certain subject areas. And I had applied for the one in what we could then called reproductive freedom because I was always very interested. I was just drawn to it. And I think as a woman, I just grew up. I'm from Indiana. I didn't grow up in a particularly radical environment. Um, but I think as a woman, it was always just very clear to me that if the government can force me to bear a child against my will, I'm living in a slave state. Mm. I just was always very clear that that would be a commandeering of my own body. And I don't, even before I had words for it, it was just something that was just obvious that can't be right. That whether, that I understood it from a what I now understand to be a perspective of pluralism. I was raised Catholic. I was very clear about uh, religious differences. But when you're a civil libertarian, part of your perspective exactly is tolerance of religious differences and uh, protecting people's ability to raise their families and govern their own bodies and lives in accord with their religious lights and beliefs and figuring out the nuanced places in which there are limitations to that. And of course, it's not infinite. So I think I approached it just as, at a gut level as an issue of sovereignty, individual sovereignty in relationship to the government, and an issue of religious freedom and pluralism. Um, so my interest began when I was in began just as a person. And then when I was in law school, applying for this fellowship felt really right. And I was very fortunate to get it. And then when I did that fellowship, I did two internships as part of it in my third year of law school. And one was at the Center for Constitutional Rights, where I got to contribute to a brief in the Casey case, the 1992 oh, wow. case that uh, ended up affirming Roe, but everyone was afraid would reverse Roe. And my section was the of the brief was helping to research the burdens on poor women of the uh, waiting period restrictions, uh, the travel and the other economic costs. I call it the abortion tax, but the additional cost of the hotel and childcare and missing work and all this stuff. So I was already steeped in that, what we now call reproductive justice perspective of like, hey, this affects different people differently. And that's, that's we should, we need to attend to that. And then my other 
internship was at um, Montfiore Hospital in the Bronx working with a clinical ethicist and working in the obstetrics unit on an issue of uh, fear of sex selection abortion, where some of the there was just concern about different immigrant groups, and it really became a form of discrimination in obstetrics care, potentially, about anticipations or stereotypes. And so I was just steeped in it from the beginning, and then my career path to be in different places. And it's interesting that as a bioethicist is when I really returned to the issue deeply. So Katie, you mentioned that as a woman, you got very interested in reproductive rights and Uh studying that. And it's funny because that's also how I think about abortion and abortion issues. As a woman, this is how I feel about Uh it. But then we also hear that John is also very interested in the topic and he thought that your book was riveting. So how do you frame the conversation about abortion and you emphasize the importance of everyone talking about it and Uh feeling comfortable with talking about it and relating to it? How do you frame that from a man's perspective and make men feel more comfortable with talking about it or people who don't feel like they have a direct connection to the issue? Mm -hmm. Well, there's two things, Chesty. I think that's a great question. One is no woman ever got pregnant by herself. All right. There's uh, unless it's uh, an anonymous sperm donor from a sperm bank. And biologically, I guess it's true. She didn't get pregnant by herself, but there's not a partner there. Mm -hmm. Um, So with respect to that, let's bracket that, that the vast majority of experiences is people having sex and they either intend to become pregnant or they don't or they're open to pregnancy. I mean, there's plenty of people out there who are that third whoops baby who were not intended and were absolutely welcome. So we don't want to say unintended is the same as unwanted. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people are having sex and they're either open to pregnancy or they're not. And there's there's two parties in that relationship. And yet somehow it's become a women's issue. Well, why is it a women's issue? We're all lawyers. Because legally it is and must remain a woman's issue. It's an individual right for exactly that that bodily integrity route that you and I perhaps just intuitively were like, I'm sorry, what? Someone's going to tell me whether I mm, – okay – if that's not my moral vision, you know, if I think it's morally acceptable to terminate a pregnancy, I will have to, my body will be used in the service of the morals of strangers. I'm sorry, you know, like help me understand, you know, this. But if we were ever to be in that position, it would be because we slept with a man, right? And so he's a partner. And if we have that baby, he will have an an emotional role or not. He will have a social role or not. He'll have an economic role or not. His life will be altered in some way, even if it's that he has to live with that he's the guy who walked away and disappeared. I mean, you know, it's, and we will be in what by had been intended as a one night stand will be a lifetime co-parenting relationship. I mean, the idea, so we've taken this legal idea that it's a woman's right, which is absolutely accurate, and then imported it into our social conversation. Although it does, it, it does not represent the majority experience sexually, but also the number's very high. It's in the high 80s. I'm going to say 86% of all abortion patients are dating or married to the man with whom they became pregnant. So it's we go from abortion as a women's issue to abortion as an issue of sex, and that's a way of like— Often people try to paint it as like, oh, it's these promiscuous women or it's just about sex. People want to have sex. And it's like, well, A, they do, uh, it turns out. But B, <laughs> that that sex is very often taking place in the context of a romantic relationship, married or unmarried, and dating. And so if we think about abortion as an as a natural consequence of dating and marriage, you know, people 
who are married, the average birth rate in the U.S. is right now about 1.8, 1.9 children per couple. So let's just round up to two. Uh, married people are having sex more than twice in their course of their marriage, typically, right? Married people are having sex for the same reason unmarried people are having sex, right? Are for, they? I don't know. I to, always hear the opposite from <laughs> Well, let's look, fingers crossed. Let's not generalize okay, too much, okay. right? But like intimacy, pleasure, right? So this idea that unmarried and married sex are so radically different, they might be morally or religiously, but like people have sex, it turns out. And so unintended pregnancies are always going to be an issue of couples and of families of saying, can we afford another child? Is this the right spacing? How how does this work for our family unit, right? 59% of women having abortions already have children, one or more. And so this idea that it's like, oh, they don't know. They didn't know they were going to get pregnant. How could this happen, right? Like this is familiar. These are family decisions. So to your first question about men coming in the conversation, I think it's we need to – the public toxicity has led to this private silence. Mm-hmm. And so all we do is import these legal frameworks or this political de- toxic debate and just substitute it for dinner pa- table conversation. So I think bringing men in as opening and being like, hey, this affects you too. You don't get to make the final decision. Right. But people are making, most people are making these decisions in partnership with each other. And the same thing that made you be on the same page as a couple, shared values, shared visions of the future, shared goals, and your empathy for one another will probably lead you to a shared decision. It, it, you, you might be at loggerheads. You might not. There's always people who couples who don't agree, you know, and she's going to make the final decision. But most people, most couples are doing this in consultation. And even when the patients report they're not in a romantic relationship, 60-some percent report that the man with whom they became pregnant knows about it and supports it, the high percent support it. So it's even when they're, it was the proverbial one night stand, a lot of them are still filling their partner in. And that's one thing that really surprised me um, and really changed my thinking after reading your book, which was I always, you know, I'll just put it on the table. I'm pro-choice and always have been as long as I can remember. But I always thought that men having a strong opinion on this issue was somehow invading the space of women Mm -hmm. because it was a women's issue. And the men who had strong opinions were pro-life and they were trying to impose their morals and their opinions on the woman. So I always uh, thought it was really my place to take a backseat on the issue and, um, you know, support it, uh-huh. but not vocally, not openly. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that really stuck out from your book was a conversation that you had with a young woman, and she described how she'd been on several dates. And the men that she had been on the dates with had said something to the effect of, uh, and I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. here, but, you know, I fully support your right to choose if. We were if we were to have sex and you were to get pregnant, that you know, yeah. do what you got to do. Well, and she worked in abortion research, so it would come up when they'd say, "What do you do?" Oh, that's and then right. she would say her job, and they'd be, like, "Oh yeah, it's a woman's body; it's her right to choose." Right. And I always thought of that as something you would say as an ally, mm-hmm. uh, but that's not quite how she felt about it, right? Yeah, it was funny. She said to me, like, and I know it's just what they've been trained to say, but it just bugs me, and it's just. Uh, 
And I just just felt officially old because yeah. I thought like, oh, they sound really feminist or whatever. Mm-hmm. They're being supportive. And I said, well, what about it bothers you? And she's like, ah, and she couldn't articulate. She's just, it's just, I know. And that's when she said, that's what they've been trained to say. Like she's trying to be sympathetic. But, um, and I was like, no, 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 don't, let's not let this go. What is it it's bothering you? What is it? And when we finally dug and dug and dug, she finally was able to use this word. And I thought it was so profound to me. She said, it's lonely. And I said, well, okay, back up. Like, do you think that if you got accidentally pregnant and you chose to have the baby, they would com- when when they were saying like I, I would comp- I completely support your decisions. Those are your decisions. If you chose to have a baby, they would completely support you. And she just burst out laughing like so loudly in this coffee shop. She's like, No, no, of course they wouldn't. They would be freaked out. They they're assuming I'm going to have an abortion. And so when they say it's your body, it's your choice, it's all up to you. What she heard was a message of abandonment. Like, I'll enjoy sex, I'll enjoy our relationship, and, you know, we're young and maybe it'll go forward and maybe it won't. We don't know what the future holds. But if we were to become accidentally pregnant, I know you'll take care of it and I won't get in your way. And that was an experience of abandonment. And when my book, I kind of talk about what would be the other thing to say that didn't feel like abandonment. And I sort of experiment with the sort of, when you talk about moral responsibility, it also left her with the moral responsibility for the decision. It's not just like, oh, the money or go alone. You know, it's the idea of like, what would actual partnership look like? And it would be both moral and practical. What if they said something like, yes, abortion can sometimes be the right thing to do. And I would be there for you in whatever way you wanted if we were found ourselves in that situation. Right. For some women would say, you know, we don't actually know each other well. I want to go with my best friend. Thank you very much. Others would be like, yeah, come, let's do this. We got in this together. Let's get out of it together. In the same way that the modern gender equality spirit of contraception of like, let's have a conversation about this and what would be the best contraception and let's share expenses or parenting of like, we chose to have a baby together. We're going to try to split parenting and and the, the less fun parts of diaper changes and staying up late together. Why are we going back on our traditional gender norms with abortion? Right. It's because it's uncomfortable and politically messy. So isn't that easy? And we were laughing that they get to sound really like liberal and progressive and down with this message that's like, and if you get accidentally pregnant, well, good I luck. Mean, and we, that's we, not the we get the benefit of most double action. standards. And, right, right. You know, I, I don't need I don't <laughs> that fact. So, but, so when you say you take the back seat, John, I want to say hop in front, and but in the passenger side. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's I love analogy. the women's really march. I've, I've been to the women's march. I love it. What if it was the couple's march? What if it was the family march? I mean, a lot of people did mm-hmm. bring their partners and friends. Yeah. But like, I have a feeling that if men felt like abortion was their issue on the pro-choice side with the same passion that those who seem to be driving the pro-life debate feel, uh, we wouldn't have to be so worried about the political and legal access to abortion. So uh, since we're talking about the man's perspective Mm -hmm. and other perspectives, one of the things that impressed me so much about your book was what a deep dive you did in the pro-choice movement and the different motivations people in that on that side of the debate have, or those sides of mm-hmm. the debate. There's really yeah. there's so many more Such nuances to this yeah. than I thought. Your pro-choice mm-hmm. when you were exploring those other issues, and I could tell really making an effort to understand where they were coming from on many different levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, what surprised you the most when you were doing that research? I think just the nuance in the spectrum. So pro-choice is a legal 
position that says you think people should have a choice. Abortion should be legal. It says nothing about whether you think people ought to have abortions ever, never, sometimes, what circumstance, who. And we have this legal conversation that's a shorthand exchange. I'm pro-choice, you're pro-choice. Great. We think we know something about each other, and we do at some basic level. But then the nuance that follows, do you think people, it's moral or ethical for people to have abortions? Who? In what circumstance? When in a pregnancy? You know, people have such nuance. Whether it's ethical for you versus other people, you know, um, and and we just we don't go further in those conversations. And writing this book helped me go further in those conversations and hear more and say, "Great, you're pro-choice. What do you think about abortion?" <laughs> and that would just open this whole other conversation that was not a conversation people were often having, right. and people would surprise me with their answers. And so, you know, there's a, an obstetrician I know who has fought for her patients and for women in general to have access to abortion. But then when I opened that, it was almost like she was whispering. She's like, I don't know if abortion's ethical. I mean, I've had a kid. I mean, it's just, it changes your view. And I just, I'm not here to tell anyone else what to do, but, and I would have never guessed in a thousand years. And similarly, I know a physician who describes himself as pro-life and is very active in the pro-life movement very strongly. And for years, I really respect him. And um, for years, I made an assumption about him. And it was only like eight years after discussing this with him that I said, so do you want abortion to be illegal? And he said, oh, no. Then we'd be back to the era of septic wards, you know, and that's those are the hospital wards where women who had unsafe abortions had life-threatening infections. He goes, no, no, I don't want abortion to be illegal. I want it to be unnecessary. And I was like, gosh, I'm an idiot. We've been talking about your perspective on the morality of abortion, and I made an assumption about your perspective on the legality of abortion. And so for me, I draw this little grid in class about abortion, constitutional right, yes or no. We can have a constitutional conversation. Abortion ethical act, yes or no. And it's not that our ethics don't influence our constitutional analysis or vice versa, but but yet the clarity of which conversation we're having kind of exposes the the nuance of people who are anti-abortion and pro-choice, which turns out my colleague, I didn't understand that. And my other uh, acquaintance who is pro-choice, but a little more anti-abortion than I realized. And and I just think that's so interesting, right? And so if you're against, if you think abortion is immoral, I respect that point of view. If you want to then make it illegal, there's a very different kind of conversation either about constitutional law or about legislation and morality laws. Um, the same way that we might have a conversation about gay rights and say, well, if you think same-sex partnerships are immoral because of your religious or or secular moral reasoning, that's different than talking about constitutional rights and the Equal Protection Clause, right? And and I think in abortion, because our public conversation, and the law has so imposed itself on this conversation, and I guess not inappropriately, because people have taken their conflicts to the courts and what are you gonna do? But we've allowed that to substitute, again, for this private conversation. So for me, opening up that nuance, it sounds perverse to say it was really fun, but I'm really drawn to spaces of silence where it's like, gosh, this is affecting almost everybody who ultimately has sex in their lives because they has heterosexual sex, let me be clear, because same-sex partners do not get accidentally pregnant unless they're sleeping with some of the opposite sex. But anyone who's had heterosexual intercourse at some level has had to kind of think about this issue, and yet we're not 
talking about it. And to me, that cultural tension of like so many people are in that space where they would have to at least think about it, if not experience it. And no one's talking about it or very few people are talking about it in a robust, honest thoughtful way is just like, wow, what's going on there? That's I think that's really interesting, too. And it's what comes after the I'm pro-choice, but part is where you really get to know somebody, right? Yeah. Like the I'm pro-choice, but I wouldn't do it. Right. You know what I mean? And so the, when, you th- when you think about the woman feeling lonely because the boyfriend says, your body, your choice, mm-hmm. I think of detachment yeah. as well because those are just you know political talking mm-hmm. points. They're not really getting at how he really feels about it mm-hmm. or— him trying to get at how you really feel about it. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And I wonder if that comes from something else you talked about in your book, which is that we don't really talk about the ordinary nature of Uh abortions. We talk about these, you know, big scary ones that go wrong or people, you know, or the late term abortions Mm -hmm. that scare everyone. We're not talking about how common they are and how it is an issue that affects more women than we think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the subtitle of my book is The Ethics, Law, and Politics of Ordinary abortion. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by ordinary abortion, we do this in bioethics too. It's the neon light cases, you know, it's extreme cases. And they're fascinating and they're uh, educational. But supporters of abortion access, you know, we're going to tell you about 12 year olds and rape victims and people with horrific fetal anomalies. And opponents of abortion are going to talk about what they would think of as abortion abuse of like someone who had more than one or has it later in a pregnancy or a particular procedure they object to. And but even when you, you know, in those cases are all real. And but when you add them up, they collectively they represent about roughly five percent of all abortions. Um, and I'm interested in the 95 percent in the middle that are for reasons like uh, I can't afford to have a baby. This would be dramatically disruptive of my current caretaking responsibilities, my education, my career. Um, I'm having trouble with my partner or husband. You know, all these like, quote, ordinary reasons, which tell you about the morality that individual's um, perspective on the morality of abortion, right? If you think that the moral value of the embryo is extraordinarily high, only the most dramatic reasons would justify ending the life of that embryo. And I use the term embryo because 80% of all pregnancy terminations happen in the weeks in which just developmentally, if you're an anatomist, it's an embryo, not a fetus. So even when we talk about the moral status of the fetus, we're talking about 20% of abortions. Is that a distinction with a difference? You know, that's up to you. But when I say the word fetus, I have a very different image than I do when I say the word embryo, right? And so that's not an accident that the word fetus has become the placeholder. That's second trimester. 80% of them are happening in the first trimester, right? 88% in the first trimester. And then the, the, the embryo week is week 11. We make a turn there anatomically where all the organs are in place. That's, that's what marks that for anatomists. So that's telling you that those people think that the moral status of the embryo that they are carrying is such that they are entitled to make that decision for those set of reasons. And I just I just find that fascinating. And bioethics, the revolution in medical ethics, is not going from the paternalistic doctor knows best, doctor knows everything, to the view that patients are moral agents that take medical facts and filter them through their own personal values, religion, life circumstance, and then make the best medical decision for them. And it may or may not be what the physician recommended, right? And I'm trained as a bioethicist to respect patients as moral agents and say, well, here's the spectrum within which you get to work. 
right? And there's some things that are just out of that spectrum and the physicians and hospitals aren't going to do. But within that spectrum, you know, you see all sorts of different choices in the same circumstances for all different reasons, right? And so I don't know why one in over age 45, one in three American women has had an abortion. Under age 45, if the 2014 statistics hold for women 15 to 44, one in four are expected to have an abortion. I don't know why I wouldn't, as a bioethicist, respect the moral reasoning, respect their moral agency of the women who end those pregnancies in the same way that I would respect the women who have unintended, unwanted pregnancies who really don't want to have a baby but continue them because of their moral beliefs. So that raises an excellent point. Unfortunately, we have to take a quick break, but we'll come right back to it. Getting legal malpractice insurance doesn't have to be complicated. Let CBA Insurance Agency do the heavy lifting for you. We shop to the top carriers to find the best rates. Get a free quote by visiting cbainsurance.org. And we're back. So, Katie, when we left off, we were talking about patients as moral agents mm-hmm. and how complicated the decision-making can be. And May I just interrupt to say it can be very simple for some people. And I, what I think is so interesting is a study that asked people if their abortion decision was uh, very easy, somewhat easy, neither easy nor difficult, somewhat difficult, very difficult, and that people were spread all over the spectrum. And that's another thing that you never hear anyone say. My abortion decision was very simple. Well, because they think that almost makes them sound callous. It's supposed to be casual. So that's another master plot. It's supposed to be really hard that abortion, we've all heard abortion is always a very difficult decision. And it's followed usually by, but it has to be a legal right. Mm -hmm. And this, this, this idea of difficulty is almost a way of acknowledging, oh, some people think this is terrible, so I really struggled. And some people really struggle. And other people are very clear. I don't think the embryo has a moral status that prevents me from doing this. I'm very clear on my values. I know who I am. I know what's right for me. And they might, they, nobody loves it. Who wants to have any medical procedure they don't need to have, even just at a base level, but that it's not always very difficult. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but no, I learned point. that from my research. And I just thought that was like, why Why yeah. is this news to me? I like that you talked about that in your book and about how there are positive aspects of someone's life that are enhanced from actually making that decision. And yeah. we don't talk about that because right. it seems say, inappropriate. <laughs> I took charge of my life and I mm-hmm. took care of me. I mean, whatever their takeaway is, I am open to all versions of those experiences. I want patients to tell me what their experience was versus a master plot that tells them what it ought to be. And if they had a different experience, they should just be quiet and shameful that they didn't have the right experience. Right. So that conversation reminds me of one of the stories Mm -hmm. that's in your book, which is of a doctor who worked at two clinics and she goes to work one day and um, there's a patient that the nurses tell her is being particularly difficult, crying, seems distraught. She goes in and she recognizes the woman who's sitting on the gurney uh, because that woman was a regular protester, an anti-abortion protester at the other clinic that Mm -hmm. the doctor worked at. And the woman told the doctor that she believes that abortion is murder and that it should be illegal, but because it's not, and she's kind of in a pinch, and she's different than all those other women, right, who get Mm -hmm. abortions. 
she's going to go ahead and go through with it. And then sometime later, not too long later, uh, after the abortion's performed, the doctor sees that woman back on the protest line at the mm-hmm. other clinic. I think your reaction in the book was much more emotionally mature and considered than mine was <laughs> when I first heard that. Uh, yeah. But w- what, what was your reaction? Outrage. Uh-huh. Hypocrisy. Yeah. You know, how mm-hmm. can she separate herself from her own actions like mm-hmm. that? Why does she consider herself to be different than all those other women who get mm-hmm. it? Like, why is she making excuses for herself and not putting herself in the shoes of all those other women? Yeah. And I, you know, my jaw hit the floor when uh-huh. I heard that story. I mean, probably shouldn't have, but no, it did. We don't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. How did you absorb that story? <laughs> well, I had, so I never shared an anecdote in the book that I hadn't heard more than once. And I don't mean the same individuals, but like to me, that story really surprised me. And I had heard it several years ago. And then I started hearing from other physicians who provide abortions about stories about treating protesters. And I thought, oh, this is a thing. And I started asking people about it. And they're like, oh yeah, at some point in your career, you end up treating someone. And it's very, it's a common experience for um, physicians who provide abortions for to have some patients start the appointment by saying, it's important for me to tell you, I am completely pro-life. This is abortionist murder. However, my daughter is a very good girl who made one mistake and she has a very bright future and da, 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 da. you know, give the speech about how we're different, but this is an exception, but we are pro-life. And to uh, really express a lot of stigma and, and negative ad- feelings about the doctor in the clinic, except I'm there asking for your medical services. So that's very common. And then the specific story of protesters is, is one I heard over and over. So I went back to this individual who had told me the story some years before, and I explained I was writing a book and could I interview her formally to use that as a representative. So I was shocked when she told me. And then later, in years later, I was like, oh, this is like a thing. Because it's really hard to have a baby that you don't want to have. It just is, and some people do it. And and I applaud their consistency and their courage. So for this protester, my, so my reaction, I did ask her, did she feel like she wanted to out this woman on the picket line? And I and use the analogy of like the gay lover of a politician who votes against gay rights. Right. Do, like, do you want to be like, oh, come on, of all the people? And I, what I... I just so admired was this physician looked at me like I was crazy. Do you know she would never breach confidentiality? And I said, well, weren't, weren't you thinking like, ah, oh, you hypocrite? And she said, no, I was thinking you look like you recovered beautifully. Good for safe legal abortion. <laughs> and I just thought, gosh, that's like that. the soul of a physician yeah. who's just yes. like, I'm just looking out for your health and we're all living our lives and whatever. But what I learned, um, psychologists have a construct called fundamental attribution error. And when I learned about that, it really helped me not be so angry. You feel like, oh, hypocrisy is one analysis, and I'm not saying it's not legitimate. But fundamental attribution error is the idea that, uh, and sadly many of us have, that other people's failings are issues of character, but our failings are issues of circumstance. Mm. So if chastity is late for a meeting, I might be like, chastity is unorganized. Chastity is disrespectful. Chastity is fill in the blank. If I'm late for our meeting, it's because, you know what? 
my kid was having a problem and being a parent is important and I'm juggling a lot of balls and I'm doing the best I can, right? So it's a lack of it's empathy. It's circumstance. Yeah. yeah, it's like I, so it's easy to say if you oppose abortion and you've had an idea that people have abortions are like X. Right. And then you find yourself wanting and needing and choosing to have an abortion. I would like to think you would have an epiphany, you know, that like, oh, gosh, you know, right. people, everyone in this waiting room might have something in common with me. But people look to reconcile that and they say, my daughter made a mistake. You know, it's like, you know, whatever. Other kids are on drugs because they're terrible. My kid made a mistake. They ran with the wrong crowd. It's not their character, right? So my daughter made a mistake or my situation is unique. I still maintain that the other women in the waiting room are fill in the blank, promiscuous or callous or this right. or that. You know, I really struggle about this. They, uh. And so for this woman, I don't know this woman, you know, but I can admit... What the doctor said is the reasons she gave, like, I can't have a baby with this man, not in the situation where my job is. You know, she was not married to this man. The situation where my job is, this, that, this. And what the doctor used the term, she said, you know, I see a lot of pulled together uh, white ladies having reasons that are not anywhere near as dramatic or dire as some of my other patients. But they're thinking they're the exception, how, like, you know— and she thought, you know, if anyone, I mean, there's sure this woman could have a baby. Anyone could have, almost anyone yeah. could. And the reasons she were giving was giving were the most ordinary reasons. And I don't say that disparagingly. I right. think women are allowed to have, quote, ordinary reasons. These are common reasons. But she, from the doctor's perspective, there was nothing that distinguished this person from anyone else in the waiting room. And the same doctor said at least once a day at these clinics, she would have somebody grab her hand from the gurney and say, doctor, some version of, I need you to know I'm not like the other women out there. Yeah. And it's really interesting for a doctor. How do you respond? You don't want to like, that's the construct that's getting them through the day. Or do you say like, you know, how do you say nicely? You, you are like all the other women. But in a nice way. Like, or just like, take, I, your, take your hand off me, sociopath. Right. <laughs> yeah. well, the physicians I work with are just so empathic. They're like, well, yeah, right. whatever gets you through your day. But it's an interesting issue for them about inserting any kind of politics or group analysis into what's your individual experience. I want to get your perspective on some of these other struggles that these uh -huh. doctors are having in this debate. So, uh, so many states allow doctors and healthcare providers to actually refuse to do abortions. Sure. I think it might be 45 of them at mm -hmm. this point. How do we reconcile the doctor's um, perceived right to not do the procedure versus the woman's right to have it? Sure. So in the United States, you actually don't have an affirmative right to any health care mm -hmm except you have a right to seek abortion and contraception. It's so interesting that the only health care that you have a constitutional right to get is the most embattled. You have no constitutional yeah. right to your diabetes treatment or your knee repair. You know, it's so interesting. But we still live in a world of negative rights versus positive rights. And so if no doctor, no one ever wanted to practice medicine, I mean, you know what I mean? Like you mm -hmm. don't have an entitlement to any doctor's care. There's still a contractual relationship. And it's interesting, as a constitutional right, you would think we have a higher responsibility, but we can't make people do things unless you want to make it a condition of licensure. We can make them, we can hope, say you have to not commit malpractice. You can make all these other things. So Chastity, I as a civil libertarian, actually am very supportive of the issue of conscience rights and physicians, individual physicians' entitlement to practice medicine consistent with their conscience. Mm -hmm. What I am not supportive of is this issue of organizations 
right? And I think we should look more closely at the issue of organizational or institutional conscience. And so it's one thing to say, Dr. Chastity, that's not part of her practice. Well, first of all, we need transparency and disclosure because maybe that would Mm -hmm. affect whether I chose you as a physician. Mm -hmm. Um, We need uh, access within the institution, right? So how are you going to get me to someone who takes does do those procedures in a way that is not radically disruptive or disrespectful to me? In the same way that I came to you as an expert on X, but something that's usually in that area of expertise you don't do. Mm-hmm. In any other area, we'd have like smooth referral so systems like referral or process, team, right. team, team care, mm-hmm. right? Versus it's a secret that I don't do that. And then when I bring it up, I'll be really weird about it and not say anything and block you from getting it, right? That's completely different. So we should distinguish between individual conscience, which I think we always want to protect and have room for, and collective responsibility for care provision, which we also want to make sure we get and do. And we're falling down on number two and confusing it with number one. So Katie, what category would you put other restrictions that are being placed on abortion, such as waiting periods or mandated counseling or um, having to notify one parent or both parents of getting an abortion? Mm-hmm. Uh, in my book, I talk about those many of those as Trojan horse regulations because they take the Trojan horse as like medical ethics or patient safety or patient care. And that's what the, the horse, the shape of the horse, but inside is an anti-abortion agenda, a restrictive agenda that says, well, if we can't make abortion illegal, we'll make access impossible, right? So waiting periods are uh, a phenomenally disrespectful expression. And I use in the book, I talk about structural stigma, how to stigmatize a procedure and punish women for having it because they create uh, an abortion tax. It increases the, the cost for someone to have to go to a clinic. And some of them require you to be in person for that too. And then go back home when you may have driven for hours and have to take time off work and figure out childcare and do all this stuff and get in a hotel in another town. So it creates this abortion tax, but it also is so insulting. And when I talk about stigma, it presumes that you have not thought about whether you want to end this pregnancy or not. Yeah, the moment you showed up at the clinic, as if you just threw a dart and you were deciding, you know, you have to make a phone call. Are you going for prenatal care or abortion care? And the idea that when you showed up, it's as if you showed up for prenatal care and they gave you a speech about how much it costs to go to college and to raise a baby and how much childcare hurts and that you're 14 times more likely to die in childbirth than an abortion. So go home for three days and think about this becoming a mother thing and make sure you're serious and then come back to us. Like we would not stand for that for a second, right? But so with the abortion, the idea is like you've gone against this, your natural role as a mother. You were destined to be a mother and that this is this horrible disruption of that plan, this biological or God's plan or whatever you want to say, and that you haven't even thought about it. When the informed consent discussion is about the medical procedure of abortion, right? But the thought process is, do I want to become a mother or not? Do I want to have this baby? And that thought process is most likely occurred before you made that phone call right? And if you seemed conflicted or not sure about your decision, what that law implies is that the physician and the counselors would just herd you through in a hurry and not send you home and say like, gosh, like anybody for any other medical procedure who seemed unsure, any other physician would say, it sounds like we need to 
reschedule this. It sounds like you're not ready to decide today, right? So it's insulting to the physicians and to the women. So that's just one of the examples you gave, but all those regulations are just meant to stigmatize and abortion, punish women, and reduce access. It's also a legislative lie, right? That kind of Trojan horse legislation. Mm -hmm. We all know what it is. No one's being fooled by it. And they're creating all of this false legislative history about the intent um, of the legislature Mm -hmm. to essentially set up the lawsuit. Well, I think, yes, certainly. We're all lawyers. We know how to set up a lawsuit and do it through legislative, you know, intent and history. It's it's um, astroturf. It's astroturf. But when you say no one's fooled by it, I'm not 100% Sure, that's true. Okay. And I think there's sort of a, I'm going to be very general here, but like a middle group that would say like, ah, abortion should be legal, but I don't like it. And and so to have women jump through some hoops to make sure they're serious, ah, maybe that's good. Maybe that's a good halfway thing. Informed consent. Who's against that? Oh, think think before an important decision. Who's against that? You know, it's easy... Or even the ASC regulations that got struck down in um, ambulatory uh, surgical care regulations, uh, asking all abortion clinics to look like ASCs, even though that's medically to utterly essentially unnecessary. essentially make them hospitals. Yeah, right? many yeah. hospitals, which is utter- medically unnecessary. But then, like, if you send it, it's like, well, to make them sure it's safe. Who's against that? You have to. You do have to dig a little deeper. Yeah. And because we're not talking about it, why should you know anything about abortions medicine? You know, like, yeah. if you've never... But we're somehow... I don't know anything about the medicine of so many things, and I work in a medical school um, because I've never had that procedure. I don't, my family member hasn't. But somehow we're supposed to be a 327 million person medical committee in the United States to have an opinion about what's the safety level of this or the informed consent needs of that for abortion care, right? So, so I just want to push back. I think, I think they're effective for a certain group. Mm-hmm. Um, of who feels maybe conflicted of like, well, should women really have that much freedom to just walk up and ask for an abortion as if it was like that's anybody's experience or thought process. And that surface level thinking that you want, you may not like abortion, but you're kind of pro-choice, but you want them to jump through some hoops. Mm-hmm. You do need to take it deeper, right? And then once you get to, well, uh, the waiting period where a woman has to come one day and then come back two days later mm-hmm. becomes a socioeconomic issue, uh-huh. then those people might have a different opinion. Well, I don't want to hurt people who can't afford it for right. that reason, or I don't want this racially disparate impact. Yeah. And that's a different issue. Well, so- We haven't touched on the fact that 49% of all abortion patients have incomes that fall below the poverty, federal poverty level, which is a very low number. And like $11,000 or something like that, right? Yeah, very low. And um, 26%, so like another quarter, have incomes that fall between 100 and 200%. Now, some of it's because um, abortion patients cluster in a younger age group, but that's not all. It's, It's poor people. Right? Lack of access to contraception, lack of sexual power to say no, to insist on contraception, all sorts of things. So, for people who are m- more disturbed by abortion in the second trimester than the first trimester, or feel like the later it happens, the worse it is, the best thing you could do is get rid of all these restrictions because they push abortion later into pregnancy. As Chastity just said, someone who has to then raise the money to go do this. The second thing you would do if you really cared, philosophers call this a gradualist approach, just the moral intuition that as an embryo grows, its moral status increases and that abortion at 20 weeks is worse than abortion at two weeks. 
right? A lot of people have that sort of moral intuition. They can't articulate when's a week that it changes, but they just feel like later is worse, right? It seems more human to yeah, them. Sure, yeah, sure, sure. It seems more like a baby, yeah. right? And they're not wrong. So the, the second thing you do is make sure Medicaid covers abortion care and make sure private insurance covers abortion care. Why are people raising money for this? Right. But so many states have regulated laws banning, like saying insurance can't cover this or saying our Medicaid won't cover this. Right. 16 states approximately have Medicaid coverage now. And Illinois is one of them. States are now some states are moving to ban insurance discrimination. Like they're saying if in private insurance, saying if you cover maternity care and contraception, you need to cover abortion care in the same proportion or however you do it. Because why are people having to scrape together, even if you're wealthy, to say you're paying out of pocket stigmatizes this in a different way. But then chastity, as you point out, like if we have 49% of people under the poverty level raising $500 for a procedure. And as you, as the gestational age increases, the procedure cost increases. So people might get together whatever their fee is, $200, find the week, they've passed a week marker where now it's $500. Okay, now add a waiting period. Now I gotta go stay in a hotel. Now mm-hmm. I have to pay someone. Now it's I'm going to lose. Income for yeah, that. I'm going to lose two days at Burger King. I could risk losing my job. Yeah. Okay, now I have to wait till it's whatever. I have a break from my job. Okay, now we're three weeks later. It costs more. Whatever it is, right? It's a. I'm now. I need anesthesia, and I have to bring a friend to drive me. Who in my life can come with me to this other town and kick it for a couple of days? So we're now going later and later. The goal is to trap that woman into delivering a baby she didn't want to have, and for some people, that's the outcome. Right. Mm -hmm. So these are all just barriers to access, but they disproportionately impact women who are poor. They disproportionately impact women of color who have a and poor women have a much higher rate of unintended pregnancy. Going back to that power and access to contraceptives issue. Right. So when we think about reproductive justice and looking at this larger image and this larger picture of the right to not have children, but also the right to have children and the right to parent the children you have. Focusing on this right not to have children, this this is impacting poor women a lot more than it's impacting rich women. Rich women are still very much impacted by it, but but it's a just at a different level. And we're gonna have to take a break right there. Interested in getting more calls from potential clients? Consider joining the CBA's lawyer referral service. The LRS has provided a valuable service to attorneys in the community for over 80 years by matching clients with attorneys in particular areas of law. The LRS receives 25,000 calls annually and makes over 10,000 referrals to attorneys each year. In the last two years alone, LRS attorneys have been referred several cases that have settled for an excess of $1 million. To learn more, visit www.lrs.chicagobar.org. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple.
So, Katie, we've been talking a lot about the restrictions on mm-hmm. abortion, and it seems like every time I pick up a newspaper, I'm reading about new attempts across the country to either impose new forms of restrictions through legislation or bring up test case after test case after test case mm-hmm. to try to see if the Supreme Court will change its mind about Roe and Casey, mm-hmm. despite the fact that it's been the law of the land for nearly half a century now. So there's this feeling that the um, right to choose is under siege. Yeah, constantly. accurately so. Is there any good news? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that there is. I think when Roe and Casey felt more secure, although all these new restrictions were coming after Casey, it was easier for people to be complacent unless they had extreme, you know, strong views on the issue one way or the other. They may have been active, but uh, there was a lot of a lot of people, I'll say, in the middle who were just like, I'm, maybe I'm glad it's legal, but it's like a non-issue. And isn't that the point of winning constitutional rights is like, now you can move on with your life. You shouldn't have to just be fighting to defend them all the time. I understand that. But the, the threat and the fear and the poss- the real possibility of an attack uh, on Roe or a gutting or reversal of Roe has led states to do what you describe is the bans and the things try to have the test cases. Although it's very important to say abortion is still legal in all 50 states. You can't just pass a statute and there's a constitutional right. But some states have now gone affirmative to say, well, okay, if Roe were to go down, what will our state law be? And our state law will be supportive of women's rights to choose. So for example, I think it's amazing that the Iowa Supreme Court in 2018, there was a 72-hour waiting period that was challenged on the basis of the state constitution. They didn't even bring up any federal claims. So it couldn't become a test case to go up. And the Iowa Supreme Court in 2018, Planned Parenthood versus Reynolds, found a fundamental right to abortion in the Iowa Constitution, meaning it's subjected to strict scrutiny, none of this undue burden stuff. And just a couple months ago in Kansas, Kansas, Kansas passed a ban on D&Es, which is a procedure I won't get into, but is uh, the majority of second trimester procedures said you can't do that anymore. You have to do things that are more dangerous for women. And same same strategy, only challenged under the Kansas state constitution. In April, the Kansas Supreme Court found a fundamental right to abortion in the Kansas Consti- state constitution, six to one decision, um, said that this is part of life and liberty and natural rights. Kansas has declaration of independence language and uses the term natural rights. I mean, it's just so state constitutions are amazing. So we've got two new state fundamental rights. We have got new legislation in Illinois has a reproductive health act, our home state and New York. We heard a lot about that. That basically codify a version of Roe. So if Roe goes down tonight, uh, tomorrow morning, the women in New York and, and Illinois wake up with the same laws. And then even in Illinois, we got rid of our Medicaid discrimination two years ago, and we got rid of our private insurance discrimination. We're part of that this year, part of that trend. I just want to point out right now, Title 10 is in the news. And so that is the uh, federal grants for family planning. And the Trump administration have done has made modifications that, as a medical ethicist, I will say are wildly unethical to— Well, re- you're, you're not suggesting that the Trump administration would do anything unethical. Uh, well, in this area, I'm going to just limit my comments and say, this time they have. Wow. Okay. <laughs> really going out on a limb there. But, yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> um, but I just want to point out, um, I hope that those are overturned in court, um, but Illinois, Washington, Vermont, and Maryland— 
the governors and legislatures of those states have pledged the same dollar amount to all the Planned Parenthoods and Title X clinics to say you can practice medicine without committing malpractice like you have been, and we will supply the money for poor uh, women and families to have their contraceptive care. So we are seeing some states and step up. And when jurists are confronted with the question, they come to the same conclusion that the Roe Court came to, which is fascinating. So the bad news is I'm worried we're going to go back to a pre-Civil War status of slave states and free states, except it's going to be about women and not people of African descent. Um, and it's going to be about this issue of abortion. I well, we've all read Freakonomics. We know what that's going to do to yeah, the economy. So that's their problem. Yeah. So I, I don't like this patchwork system. Yeah. I think that Roe should and Casey should well Roe should be affirmed, not Casey. Um, I think Roe should be affirmed. It was correctly decided, and I think it should be affirmed. And because I have lived through Casey, where everyone was so sure Roe was going to be reversed, it was modified in ways that really hurt women. I really think it's absolutely possible that we it will hold together, and I think it should because it should be federal. If it goes down, I think Congress should fix it and make federal legislation that gets rid, you know, makes these state bans not permissible. There's other solutions. It has to be a federal right. We cannot be balkanized like this. But the good news is the impression that, oh, when the the ropes are off, states want to ban abortion. That's that's not at all uniform. And we're going to see more of the um, affirmative protections in, in the f- next year, I think. Excellent. We'll end things on that brighter yeah, note. Like and we're going to go straight to uh, legal fiction. Great. The rules are pretty simple. Chastity and, well— I haven't done my research on it, but Chastity was kind enough to do the research for me on this one. Um, Public defenders, right? Yeah. yeah. Just, Always prepared. Always prepared. Doesn't matter how many cases. They will be there. <laughs> We've done a little research, found one law in the books that is true, but probably shouldn't be. Made another one up. We're going to quiz you and each other <laughs> to see which is real and okay. which is not. If we can distinguish strange legal fact from fiction. Chastity, oh you want to lead us off? Sure. Okay. Rule number one is, it is legal to wear a fake mustache that causes laughter in church in Alabama. It's legal? Illegal. 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 To wear a fake mustache that causes laughter. In church. In church. In Alabama. Okay. Second one is, in Texas, it is illegal to erect a greenhouse within 500 feet of a tobacco farm. I'm going with mustache because who cares about greenhouses and tobacco farms? You I don't the think there's any relationship. Well, I think that is actually a law because I don't think anyone cares about the distance between greenhouses and tobacco farms. I don't know anything about tobacco farms, but that one doesn't make any sense. You are correct. Ah, I shouldn't be, <laughs> but just agriculturally, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, because I mean, the, the, the mustache doesn't make any sense either. But then somebody obviously laughed in church, and then this somebody was obviously else a problem that happened, happened to be in the state legislature and. Here we all are. Exactly. That is, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to state legislatures. All right. I'm only going to ask you, Katie, this one because Chassie did the research for me, so I'm not going to okay. ask her to, you know, distinguish what she already knows. Okay. All right. First option. All right. It is illegal in Arkansas for public school children to use a pencil that is not a number two pencil. Mm. Second option. <laughs> Honking one's car horn at a sandwich shop after 9 p.m. is illegal in Arkansas. So mm. honking after 9 or using anything but a number two pencil if you're a public school kid. I want it to be the honking at a sandwich shop, but I actually think maybe it's the school regulation. Why do you think? Just a, just a 
profound drive to standardization, but it also sounds like a poll tax or a way to get kids out of school. You don't have the money for none of two pencils. But the honking at the sandwich shop could be the same thing if somebody honked at a sandwich shop and the sandwich shop owner knew someone in the state legislature. I just don't have the same greenhouse rationale. But I'm going to go with number two. All right. Well, you're batting 500 today. Ah, nice I should have gone with the same rationale of somebody knew somebody and you can't honk at my sandwich shop anymore. I mean, usually, usually the stupider the law, the more true it is mm-hmm. in my experience yep. yeah. for this yeah, yeah. game. But, I love this game. Can hey, we, look, look, 500. <laughs> this is like a word a day from a dictionary thing. Would you just email me every <laughs> morning with one, one of these? And I'm just like, ah! <laughs> well, hey, look. Mantle batted, like, didn't even bat 500. So that's you know, right. That's like Ted Williams level. You're, uh-huh. that, that's okay, something thanks. to be proud of. Thanks. <laughs> I will be proud of that. Thank you. And that's going to be our show for today. I want to thank our guest, Professor Katie Watson of Northwestern, for this nuanced and insightful conversation. Her book is Scarlet A, The Ethics, Law, and Politics of Ordinary Abortions. It's a great read truly eye-opening and a must-read for anyone who's interested in this subject. I also want to thank everyone here at the CBA who makes this machine run, including my co-host Chastity Burns, our executive producer Jen Byrne, Ricardo Islas on Sound, and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. Remember, you can follow us and send us your comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the bar, all one word. Please also rate rate us and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar. <laughs>